0: We are finally coming to chapter 7, the long-awaited discussion of Melchizedek. <laughs> uh, I say that, I don't know how many of you are actually really longly awaited the discussion of Melchizedek, but certainly the, the readers of this book were. We, before we come into this subject, I, I do need to tell you, it is, it is what uh, we call in, in theological circles... Uh, deep. <laughs> As you discuss Melchizedek, it's deep stuff. And the author certainly thought that himself, because if you recall, he mentioned Melchizedek for the first time in chapter 5. And then he abruptly, before he went on to fully elaborate about Melchizedek, he stopped. Remember that? He just, he just stopped. He paused, um, took a break from what he was going to say, because he wanted to address those in the church that had not fully embraced Christ as Savior. They had become, if you remember, dull of hearing, spiritually lazy. Many of them were wanting to go back into Judaism, back into the um, old uh, covenant types and patterns and those things. And he was trying to go on to something new that drew from the old. And he says, if you don't, if you don't get that, you're not going to get this. And so he took a break. And it's been a month or so since we began the whole section here. And so I want to remind you of the author's point Uh, really, in this entire segment that we're in. The whole theme of the book is Jesus is better. He's better than everything. But he's been progressively telling us what he's better than. He's better than than the prophets. Now God speaks to us through his son. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. Well, this whole section is that Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. It really is the heart of the book. It's the focus of over half the book. Chapters 5 through 9 really... Focus on the fact, more than anything else, that it is his superior priesthood which makes the new covenant better than the old. Now, you today, New Testament church, might be asking, why is that so important? You've got to think like this Jewish audience. If you were hearing for the first time that there is a sort of a new priesthood, you would have a problem right away, or that Jesus is a priest, you would have a problem because a priest had to be descended from the tribe of Levi. Levi. A priest had to be of the family of Aaron, Moses' brother. And and that was prescribed by God himself. God had established that. Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. He was the tribe of Judah, the royal line, the kingly line. So how could Jesus in any way be a priest at all, much less be a superior priest? Well, he had to be from a better line. He had to be from a, a better order of priesthood. So that is what the author wants to establish. And if you go back to chapter 4, verse 14, this is where he first introduced this new and very important argument. Chapter 4, verse 14, he said, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So there he presents Jesus as the high priest, the one that not only could enter the the holy of holies in the tabernacle, but enter the very presence of God in the heavens. And then he went on in chapter 5 to describe, if you remember, the priestly qualifications. There were qualifications for a priest. The first was he had to be a man. And Jesus met and even exceeded all of those qualifications in chapter 5. And then that argument is when he introduced Melchizedek. He ends up introducing him by quoting from Psalm 110, verse 4. You'll find it quoted there. In chapter 5, verse 6. Remember, the author often goes to the Old Testament to support what he's saying. And here it is in chapter 5, verse 6. Also, he is, uh, sorry, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, this, this psalm, Psalm 110.4, ends up being his central uh, support from the Old Testament because he quotes it again at the end of chapter 5. Look at verse 10. Uh, uh, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And if you were here last week, um, he ended his discussion, his pause. He ended that by coming back full circle to the subject of Melchizedek. In chapter 6, verse 20, he mentioned him again, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then... As we come into chapter 7, you're going to see him quote Psalm 110 verse 4 three more times. You're going to see it in verses 11 and 17 and 21. So this is his central support, his central point, the forever priesthood of Melchizedek and consequently his greatness. That is the theme of the passage and that's the title of today's sermon, the greatness of Melchizedek. But this brings up the question, it's a question I threw out there a while ago, but who is Melchizedek? Well, there are many, many ideas. Many ideas have been introduced over the centuries. Some believe that he is some angelic being, that he is a super uh, angel that has a key role in the end times and in judgment. And that's not just made up, but it actually is is recorded by the same uh, group of, of people that were the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that Qumran community. There are Uh, writings about Melchizedek and the possibility of him being this super uh, angel, angelic being. Some early church fathers and rabbis believed him to be Shem, Noah's son. But neither of these views can be supported by our text in Hebrews, you'll see that, uh, nor by the three verses that we'll be looking at in Genesis 14, where Melchizedek is introduced. The thought that he was an angelic being, by the way, I think can be rebutted simply by what the author says about the high priest in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. You might remember, we looked at at that. The angels would not make suitable uh, priests because they're not men. They don't have the same nature as men. They don't have the same experiences as men. They don't have the same temptations as men. And therefore, they can't truly identify with men, or understand them. But Jesus, on the other hand, well, he became a man, and therefore he could be our sympathetic and high priest. So angels, I think we can rule that out just by that. But another reason, I would say, is this. If Melchizedek were an angel, and Jesus is better than angels, then why would the author here be trying to compare uh, Jesus to be a high priest like the angel Melchizedek? You see, it doesn't seem to make any sense. So I don't think he's an angel. The Shem theory, we'll we'll look at that later when we get into the passage. But one very, very popular theory remains, and that is this. Many, many people believe that Melchizedek was Jesus Christ himself. Now, we do know that Jesus does appear in the Old Testament. He is a pre-incarnate Christ, often identified as the angel of the Lord. We call that a theophany, and certainly we see that in the Old Testament, but when we see that we are noted, it is noted that he is the angel of the Lord or it is noted by the person talking to this supposed man that that is the angel of the Lord or that is God or some divine being at the very least do we see that here is Melchizedek an angel is he is he Shem is he Jesus well let's see if that's any, any of those things are the point and let's read the passage we're looking at chapter seven today verses one through ten and see if we can get to the bottom of this and see what the author's whole point is of bringing up Melchizedek. So verses 1 to 10 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, "...having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham." But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your word, Lord. And even now, Lord, as we look back at this mysterious Old Testament figure, Melchizedek, we pray that you would just give us understanding. Lord, that you would enlighten us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we might understand through the writer of Hebrews the significance of this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. So be with us today. We want to know you, we want to know your word. We pray that you would help us to do that today for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, before we jump into this, let's keep uh, the whole purpose of the book in mind. I think that always helps. We want to know that Jesus is better than than anything. That's his whole idea. And without a doubt, the most difficult thing for a first century Jew to grasp would be, how will this new priesthood work? I mean, how is that going to happen? Because God had established that priests would be the mediators, right? Levitical priests would be the mediators between God and man. And we need a mediator. Why do we need a, a mediator? Because we can't approach God. God is too holy. He's too perfect. And so God, in his grace, graciousness, he, he provided these priests to minister to the people. They were uh, consecrated for this particular purpose, set apart. He chose a group of, of people who would be specifically set apart to be the, the mediators between the people and God. So God established the Levitical uh, priest, priesthood. Now, to leave L- the Levitical priesthood and to go on to something new, if that's what he is trying to tell them, you can leave that behind and go to something new, that's a very difficult thing to say to someone. How do you leave that priesthood and go on to something entirely Different, because God had established that. Well, what the author wants to show them is this. Now, this is the key thing you've got to understand. They're not leaving the Levitical priesthood to go on to something entirely new. They're going to something that God had already established long before the Levitical priesthood ever existed. And you'll see that today, because we go way back to Melchizedek, who was in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. In fact, we only have four whole verses on Melchizedek. And the author in chapter uh, 7, verse 1, is going to really recap what happens from Genesis 14. So here at the beginning, he wants to present the greatness of Melchizedek. So if you're taking notes, you could just say his greatness is presented in this first section. So look at verse 1. It says, for this Melchizedek, The Melchizedek he had just brought up in the verse prior to that. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Stop right there. we got to stop, don't we? Because we need some context. Obviously, he's talking about Melchizedek in the context of Abraham, who lived before the Levitical priesthood who met Abraham. And Abraham had something to do with the slaughter of kings. So we've got to find out what all this is about. To do that, we have to go to Genesis 14. So I want you to turn there. Keep your finger, obviously, in Hebrews or mark that because we'll be going back and forth a bit. Genesis 14 is where we need to go. This is the first appearance of Melchizedek. Now, as we go here, you need to understand something in that ancient world, in that time. There were many kings of many provinces, many kings of different ruling states, you could say it that way. In fact, Abraham was a sort of king of his state, but there were many kings, and these kings were at war and and often coming in and taking over territories and raiding one another's provinces and and, and back and forth that would go. And in Genesis 14, we come into the midst of such a war, a war between kings. And in Genesis 14, verse 1, it says this, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, Chedolomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. So here we have uh, these these kings that are warring. And the key king here is King Kedor Alomer, is how you pronounce that, but it looks like Cheddar Lomer. So for the sake of easy today, I'm going to call him King Cheddar, okay? That's King Cheddar. King Cheddar, three other kings come with him, so four kings, go up against five other kings in battle. Two of those kings, you notice, were kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, when we hear of the king of Sodom being involved in the battle, our mind should actually immediately go back to Lot, Abraham's nephew. Do you remember why? Well, last week we did a little recount of Abraham's life. Do you remember that? And we looked at that in chapter 13, we learned that Abraham and Lot separated ways. Look back at chapter 13 of Genesis. Look at verse 11. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. So we know Lot goes to Sodom. And then when we get ahead and we see that these, these kings are at war, and we get through that, then it should be no surprise when we learn that King Cheddar <laughs> successfully defeats the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, that he, he then plunders those cities and takes Lot captive. Look at chapter 14, verse 11. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. So now Lot is a captive, and Abram learns about uh, uh, him being taken captive. So Abram raises a force, a mighty force, of a whole whopping 318 trained servants (laughs) to go in pursuit of these kings, and he wins. He beats them in battle. And look at uh, chapter 14, verse 16. This kind of sets this all up. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. Now look what it says in verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Lomer and the kings who were with him. Now, before we get to the conversation between Abraham and this king of Sodom who came out to meet him, Melchizedek enters out of nowhere. Out of thin air in Scripture, Melchizedek is just there. And look at verse 18. This is where he comes. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, listen, we just read about a whole bunch of kings, but that king was not mentioned in the war. King of Salem brought out bread and wine, he was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. That's it. That's all. That's all we have of Melchizedek. Those three verses. And then he goes on with his discussion with the king of Sodom. That is it. We don't hear about Melchizedek again until the Holy Spirit gives King David a prophecy about him and Psalm 110, verse 4, is written. That is it. Now, think about this. Think about this. The author of Hebrews, in writing about Melchizedek, had a whopping four verses to work from. That is it. He had just these four verses the three here and the one in Psalm 110, verse 4. He sees the account of Melchizedek here in Genesis 14. He sees the prophecy of of David in Psalm 110, verse 4, and he connects the dots through the Holy Spirit. He connects the dots. He sees that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy, a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He sees it. And so the Holy Spirit gives the author of Hebrews understanding, and so he writes Hebrews 7 to show us that Jesus is a priest like no other priest in Israel. Because there was a priest before Israel, and his name was Melchizedek. Now, is the author's point to show us that Melchizedek was Jesus? I just want to jump on this um, at the beginning for a moment. I know this is a very popular view, and it does find support specifically in the language of verse 3. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 7, um, let's be honest, it's it's, it's strange verse. And this is where we kind of look um, for maybe something more spectacular than him being a man, because it says in verse 3 that he's without father, without mother, without genealogy. He has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God and remains a priest continually. So it'd be easy to read this and and think, gosh, he's got to be something other than a man. Well, as I mentioned already, the author is going to quote Psalm 110 verse 4 six times which says that he's a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's pretty strange language to use if Jesus is actually Melchizedek, if that is a pre-incarnate Jesus. Why would Jesus be in the order according to the order of Melchizedek? Also, the the language that we see here is of similarity. It's not of identity. Verse 3 says that he was made like the Son of God, not that he was was the son of God. And later in chapter seven, verse 15, we're not going to get there today, but just to peek ahead, it says, and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest. So his argument is going to go on to say, there's going to come another priest who is in the likeness of Melchizedek, but not actually Melchizedek. So who is Melchizedek? Well, I believe Melchizedek is an old Testament type, an old Testament type of Christ. Now, you have heard me say these things over and over again, patterns, copies, types, uh, shadows. All those things are in the Old Testament, but they find their reality in the new. And so Melchizedek, I believe to be an actual historical human being that prefigured Christ. In fact, fact, the passage actually says in verse 4, now consider how great this man was. Does call him a man. But a a good definition for an Old Testament type, if you want to have it, is is this. Uh, It's a person or a practice or a ceremony, you can even say a ritual, person, practice, or ceremony that has a counterpart in the New Testament. It's a person or a ritual or a a ceremony of some kind that has a counterpart in the New. So the the type is found in the Old Testament, the counterpart or the antitype is found in the New let me give you some examples. In Numbers 21, we read about some fiery serpents that God sent among the children of Israel when they were wandering the wilderness because we're told that they spoke against God and against his servant Moses. So he sends them in there to attack and to bite the people. The people don't like that and they are upset and they, they repent and they ask Moses for help to go to God and intercede. And God gives this instruction to Moses and Moses writes this in Numbers 21.8. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. And that's what Moses does. He makes a serpent out of bronze. He puts it up on a pole. And when people look at that, they don't die from the bite. They, they live. Now, how do we know that that bronze serpent in the Old Testament is a type? Because of what the New Testament says about it. In fact, Jesus himself says something about it in John chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. He says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So you see, everyone who looked at the bronze serpent in the wilderness lived. They were saved. Everyone who would look upon Jesus when he's raised up on the cross and believes in him will be saved. You see that? Old Testament type reality in Christ. Another example, probably a really obvious one, is the sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament, the, the, the Passover lamb right? That lamb, that lamb that was slain, the blood was put on the door, the lintel, and, and that way the angel of death passed over those who were covered by the blood. That same, you know, a lamb had to be sacrificed, not the same lamb, but a lamb. A lamb had to be sacrificed for your sins the day of atonement every year. That blood covered your sins. Well, we get to the New Testament and John the Baptist lays his eyes on Jesus. And what does he say? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, We see the Old Testament talk about this lamb and its blood and the power of the blood, but it's actually the power of the blood of the lamb in Jesus Christ. It's the reality that's found in the new. So, and that one's an easy one because, gosh, we go to Revelation. Don't we see that some more? In Revelation chapter 5, we're in the throne room of God, and it says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. And we know it's Jesus because after that, the elders of heaven, they're praising the lamb who was slain. So the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of the Passover, they prefigure Jesus who became for us a sacrifice. These are Old Testament types, and they're no way equal to Christ. They're they're not exactly like Christ, but do you see how they typify him? That's the idea, and, and sometimes it's in one or more ways. Well, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. His, unique, his, pre, his, his priesthood is unique, and even his name um, and his title typify Jesus in a, a number of significant ways, and that's what we're going to look at, but what's amazing is that the first mention of him is in Genesis 14. We just read it, and then you've got to think about this. Some thousand or so years passed by, and then King David writes about him, moved by the Holy Spirit, writes about him in Psalm 110, and then some thousand years or so pass by, and the author of Hebrews writes about Melchizedek and gives us even more significance uh, about him. So go back to our passage in Hebrews, and we'll look at this. The author's here just recounting what we read in Genesis, and as he does this, we're going to see how Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical uh, priesthood and how it foreshadows Christ's priesthood. Which is the first point here? It foreshadows Christ's priesthood. So look at verse one again. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God. Now that's important because the author writes most high God. Where does he get that from? Why does he say most high God? Why does it not say uh, L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D? Why does it not say priest of Yahweh? Well, he gets it straight from the Genesis account. When you go to the Genesis account that we just read, we're told that Melchizedek was priest of God most high. And then in the next verse, when he blesses Abraham, he says, blessed be Abram of God most high. He says it twice there. That's significant because of this. God's name in relation to Israel was a name that they could not even write. They couldn't even say. They had to shorten it down to, to make it something that they could pass off. They thought his name was just too holy to even say. His name is Yahweh. It's Jehovah. That is the the covenant name of God with Israel. But Melchizedek, we're told, was priest of the Most High God. Most High God is El Elyon. That is the universal God. In fact, he says, possessor of heaven and earth. So here's the point that Christ's priesthood and Melchizedek's priesthood are universal. And when we look at that El Elyon, by the way, It is found in Scripture. Guess where the first two places it appears is? Genesis 14, Melchizedek. That is the first time you see that that he is Elion. His point is this. Melchizedek is not simply a priest of a certain certain people. He's not a a, a Levitical uh, priest. He's a universal priest. He's the priest of the God Most High listen to this uh, quote that just sort of wraps it up. It represents God as possessor of heaven and earth, God above all national or dispensational distinctions. There's no distinctions there. And see, once Melchizedek exits the scene there, then Abraham speaks to the king of Sodom, and he goes on to speak about God as well, and he uses the old A covenantal name, as well as El Elyon. In verse twenty-two, I'll just read it to you. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, "I've raised my hand to 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 the Lord Yahweh, God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth." It's the same God, is the point. It's the same God, but this Melchizedek is identified as God, uh, a priest to the God Most High. Pretty amazing. So he's a universal priesthood. But note, it existed before the Levitical priesthood. Before that, long before. Uh, Moses came along. And this is the point. Christ's priesthood is a universal priesthood. Jesus is Messiah, not of just Jew. He's a Messiah of Jew and Gentile. In fact, Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. There is no distinction anymore. That's why Galatians 3.28 says this. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus We're all equal in him and have an equal um, uh, access to the priesthood. It's not limited to a particular group. He's not just the priest of the Jew or just of, of men, but he's a universal priest. In fact, if you're in Hebrews 7, just look at verse 25, skipping ahead there. It says, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. It doesn't say just those Jews that come to God through him. Uh, just those men that come to God through him. He's able to save all those who come to God through him. Why? Because it's a universal priesthood. The second thing you get from verse 1 is that it's a royal priesthood, because this Melchizedek was king of Salem. He's a king. And if you remember, we, I don't want to go into the great detail, but I did back in chapter 5, the offices of king and priest in, in connection to Israel were never to be mixed You did not find a king that was also a priest. You did not find a priest that was also a king. You had a priestly line through Levi and ultimately Aaron, and you had a a kingly line or royal line that went back to Judah. And a couple examples I gave you was King Saul. When King Saul got impatient, waiting for the priest Samuel to come and offer sacrifices, he did it himself. And because he did it himself as king, he was rejected as king. King Uzziah is another example. He went into the temple to burn incense on the altar, and he immediately became leprous. Why? God cursed him because he mixed the offices of king and priest. But here we go back to Genesis, way before those guys existed, and we find the Melchizedek. He was king and priest. He's both. In fact, four times he's referred to as uh, king. Here in chapter 7, verse 1, he's the king of Salem. And then in verse 2, it says that he's king of righteousness. That's also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Four times king is is used. The author wants us to see that not only is he the priest to Most High God, but he's a king. And that didn't exist in Israel's time. There's something unique about him is what he's trying to say. There's something unique. He's different. And listen, David predicted in Psalm 110 um, that this would be the case. Now, we looked at Psalm uh, 110, verse Four, quoted lots of times, but let me just back up to show you verses one and two. Psalm 110, verses one and two, a Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, the Jews understood this to be a messianic Psalm. This is about the Messiah. And remember, Jesus confronts them and says, well, if this is about the Messiah... Whose son is is this? If he's the son of David, why does David say the Lord said to my Lord? Remember that whole conversation? But this is the Lord, Yahweh, saying to the Lord, Messiah, sit at my right hand. You're going to rule. You're going to rule in the midst of your enemies. And then you get to verse 4, which is the verse that the Hebrews author quotes a bunch of times. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So in verses 1 to 2, the Messiah is going to rule. And then verse 4, he's going to be a priest, king and priest. Now, the dual role of priest and king is not only here in Psalm 110. The the prophets prophesied about this. In Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, it says this, Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, well, the righteous branch is Jesus, From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord, he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. Do you see that? He's a priest on the throne. He's priest and king. And that's what Jesus was coming to be, both priest and king. And there was a precedent for it, and that was Melchizedek. This is not something entirely new. God had established it long before the Levitical priesthood of Israel. But notice something else that he is the king of. He's the king of Salem. Now, many people believe that king of Salem was an ancient name for Jerusalem. Melchizedek was an ancient king of Jerusalem long before the priests ministered there. And Psalm 110, verse 2, which we just looked at, by the way, just to remind you of it, said this, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength. Where is he going to rule from? Out of Zion. Where's Zion? That's also Jerusalem. He's going to rule out of Zion. Listen, God has chosen Jerusalem. He chose Jerusalem long ago to be his special dwelling place. We're actually told in Psalm 132 that he chose Jerusalem. For the Lord has chosen Zion. That is the name for Jerusalem. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever." Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Isn't it amazing? You go back to the Old Testament, and you find there is a priest and a king who ruled over ancient Jerusalem, the place that God has chosen to be his dwelling place. So Christ's priesthood, it's a royal priesthood, and that is nothing new. The priesthood of Melchizedek was a royal priesthood, and it foreshadows Christ's priesthood. I told you this stuff was was deep stuff. And this is why the author paused. He wants them to see this. But he also foreshadows Christ's character. Notice in verse 2, that to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. So Melchizedek means king of righteousness. That's what it means. And, and this also, this king was king of Salem, and Salem is uh, shalom, which is peace. So that's his title. So his name means righteousness, and his title means peace. And these are attributes of Christ's priesthood, righteousness and peace. Now, we're not given any descriptions when we read about Melchizedek, how he ruled righteously, uh, if he was able to pass off righteousness to others or give them anyone peace. That's not the reason he writes this. In fact, he's only a type. That's why his name means righteousness. That's why his title means king of peace. He's a type. In fact, he says it's being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Now, that's all the author gives us on, on that. But I want to look at Jesus for a moment because Jesus, is he not the perfect king of righteousness and peace? I mean, Scripture tells us that he became for us righteousness. Scripture tells us that he himself is our peace. Jesus is righteousness and he is peace. And in him, those two important elements come together together. Isn't it remarkable that way back in Genesis, there was also this individual whose name meant righteousness, who had the title of peace, who prefigured the Christ, who would be both of those things. It's incredible. Psalm 85.10 says, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Guess where they kissed? In the person of Christ. They come together in him. It's amazing. In fact, that's even the correct order, isn't it? You don't have peace without righteousness. Do you? Righteousness comes first. You must have righteousness. We can't have that um, without the righteousness. Isaiah 32, 17 says, the work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. That's what righteousness does. It brings about peace. How so? Well, we need righteousness. Remember our Easter uh, talk we need righteousness. There's none righteous, no, not one. So we need righteousness. God's wrath is being poured out against the unrighteousness of men. So we need righteousness. And Jesus brings righteousness and he offers it to mankind. And then when we have righteousness, we now have peace with God. We're no longer under his wrath. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified, that's counted righteous. Okay. By faith, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus. See, this is certainly far superior to the Levitical priesthood. You know, I think it was the goal. I think the purpose was to obtain righteousness for men. I think the purpose was to restore a relationship with God, but it never happened. It could never impart righteousness to men. It could never uh, fully give them everlasting peace. It could never completely forgive them of their sins, which is why they had to do it year after year after year. The work of the priest was never done, they had to do it all the time. But Jesus offers his righteousness, and you, you take it once. And when you have his righteousness, then you have eternal peace, which we all need. Second Corinthians 5, 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We get his righteousness, and with his righteousness, we get peace. So Melchizedek's name and his title foreshadow the wonderful character of Christ in that he is both righteousness and peace. One more point on that foreshadows one more thing. It foreshadows Christ's qualifications. And this comes to the tricky verse. Let's look at verse three. He's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, remains a priest continually. What is happening uh, here? Well, here's the point here is that priests were ordained by God. Remember that in back chapter five? They're chosen by God. And he chose them ultimately by saying they would, be coming, they would come from the, the Levites. That would be the tribe. They had to be descended of Aaron. They're ordained by God. You couldn't just go and put an application to be a priest. You're chosen by God. And that's certainly the same with Jesus. And it's certainly the example we see of Melchizedek. Now, I think here in verse three, we can kind of, just to a side note, write off the whole Shem theory that Melchizedek is Shem. Because it says here that Melchizedek is without genealogy. But when you read Genesis 9 and 10, that's the part you're yawning on and going, huh. it's nothing but genealogy of Shem and his ancestors and descendants. So that is not Melchizedek. Let's just take that off the table. But this verse, really, in this verse alone, is really what leads to the speculation that Melchizedek is more than a man because of all the things that it says. Well, let me, let's, let's see if we can understand this. We have to understand, first of all, that the Levitical priesthood was entirely hereditary. Entirely. You had to be a descendant of Aaron. Your genealogy determined everything, which meant your personal, personal qualifications had nothing to do with it, which is why you get some pretty bad stinkers once in a while, like Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, <laughs> had nothing to do with their character, had nothing to do with their personal qualifications. They just happened to be Um, in the lineage. You can only serve as priest if you could demonstrate your genealogy, which is why Scripture also gives us examples of those who were prohibited from serving as priests because they couldn't prove their genealogy. We find such an example in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 64. Let me just share it with you real quick. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. They wanted to be included in the priesthood. They couldn't prove it through genealogy. They therefore were excluded. So what the author is saying here, if I can just bring all this around, is that scripture, what scripture reveals, and specifically in Genesis 14 about Melchizedek, what it gives us here, it's silent on his heritage. We don't have genealogical qualifications for his priesthood. We, we don't have anything. He, he is as if without father, without mother, without genealogy. This key word, without genealogy, is a very important word. It's, again, eolagatos, long word. And it's only used here in Scripture, but it's also only used here and nowhere else found in any Greek literature. It's almost as if the author made this word up to define this. And it means unregistered as to birth. It means without descent. And the reason it's only used here and uh, only of Melchizedek is probably obvious because everyone does have a mother and father. Everyone does have a genealogy. Not Melchizedek, according to Scripture. There's no reference to it. There's no record of it. Don't you guys go through the Old Testament and you're reading so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, begot son of so-and-so. It's always son of, son of, son of, son of. They're very particular about the lineage. Melchizedek, nothing. In fact, let me give you Vine's expository dictionary definition of what this word means without genealogy. Without recorded pedigree is rendered without genealogy in Hebrews 7.3. The narrative in Genesis 14 is so framed in facts and omissions as to foreshadow the person of Christ. It's so framed in the things it does give us as fact and the things that it doesn't give us, that it foreshadows Christ. So far as scripture is concerned, Melchizedek, he just appears on the scene as a king and as a priest, and yet no information is given as to, to who his father was, who his mother was, uh, no recorded birth date, no, nor a, a day of death. Well, Melchizedek is a type of Christ here because his genealogy is irrelevant to his priesthood. Remember, guys, that's the theme. He's trying to prove the priesthood, it's irrelevant. It doesn't have anything to do with it. Now, does Jesus have a genealogy? You bet he does. just go read Matthew and and Luke. In fact, Matthew's gospel begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There's a genealogy of Jesus. But his lineage cannot be traced back to Aaron or Levi. His lineage is traced back to Judah. It's the royal line, isn't it? And as far as the Levitical priesthood is concerned, Jesus is not qualified. He's not in the priestly line. His priesthood is established by God. God ordained it. Remember Psalm 110 verse 4? God swore that he would be the priest. Remember, we looked last week at one of the oaths God made. He swore to Abraham that he would fulfill the promises. He swore by himself. And then we said there's another place that he swore. It's this verse, Psalm 110 verse 4. God, the Lord, has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You don't have to be in the Levitical priesthood line is what he's saying. You don't have to have a genealogy that goes back to Aaron. I have sworn to make you a priest. And guess what? It's in a new order. No, it's not in a new order. It's in an order he already established in Genesis. Do you see the brilliance of scripture? What if Melchizedek wasn't even there? This would be a harder argument for him to say, just trust me. Just trust me. Jesus is a priest. Okay. He's just a priest. Why? God says he's a priest. But he is able to go back to their Old Testament, written by Moses. Go, look at Genesis 14. There's a priest like that already. He exists in the person of Melchizedek. Scripture is incredible. Jesus, like Melchizedek, needs no genealogy to be priest. In this sense, he is made like the Son of God. He's made like the Son of God. That word made like is afamoyao, and it means to be rendered similar. He's, made similar, he's not made into Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's made like the Son of God. He is, it's as if, because he has no genealogy, nothing to back up, uh, why he could be a priest, he's made like the Son of God. Listen to this F.F. Bruce commentary. It helps kind of pull all this together. The important consideration was the account given of Melchizedek in Holy Writ. To him, the silences of Scripture were as much due to divine inspiration as were its statements. In the only record which Scripture provides of Melchizedek, Genesis 14, 18-20, nothing is said of his parentage, nothing is said of his ancestry or progeny, nothing is said of his birth, nothing is said of his death. He appears as a living man, king of Salem and priest of God Most High, and as such, he disappears. In all this, in the silences as well as in the statements, he is a fitting type of Christ. In fact, the record by the things it says of him and by the things it does not say has assimilated him to the Son of God. Bechizedek lacked genealogy, but he was chosen as priest because of who he was, not where he came from. Jesus was ordained as priest by God because of who he is, not this lineage. But also notice in this that it is eternal. It's an eternal priesthood. Because he says that he's a priest, his priesthood remains. Sorry, it says remains a priest continually. Now, a Levitical priests did not remain a priest continually; they served from the age of twenty-five to fifty. No priest served more than twenty-five years. That was your, 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 you're done. You're retired at fifty. Maybe we should start doing that. Right? But um, collectively, even the priesthood began in the time of Moses when God gave the law and established the Levitical priesthood, and then it ended in A.D. seventy with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. the Levitical priesthood was strictly for the old covenant. That's the point. Melchizedek, because he had no recorded birth, date, or day of death, we're told, remains a priest continually. Does that mean Melchizedek is still living? He's living forever? That's not his point. The point is that the order of priesthood is eternal. It's an eternal priesthood. The fact that we have no biblical record of his beginning or his death. Melchizedek's priesthood symbolizes the eternality of his priestly order. Melchizedek is a type of Christ's eternal priesthood. In fact, that's what it says about him in chapter 7, verse 24. Just look at this. It says, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. He continues forever. Jesus is an eternal priest. The author simply presented Melchizedek's greatness based upon the facts and the omissions, the things it doesn't say of the historical record. That's what he's trying to do. And so we see all these things about Christ in Melchizedek in just those three verses, him drawing from Genesis 14. But now he uses the interaction between Melchizedek and Abraham to prove his greatness. And I'll go through this quickly here. It's his greatness proved. There he presented it. Now he's going to prove it from the interaction between Melchizedek and Abraham. Look at verse 4. Now consider how great this man was. Again, there he is, a man, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. First, he's going to use this tithe. It's a lavish tithe. He tithed to him. And the point is simple here. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, as, as great of a man he was, he gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Now, we're not given any details as to why Abraham did this. It's, in fact, the first mention of scripture in Scripture of, of giving 10%. Many people think, oh, we're supposed to give 10%, and it's the, it's the tithe we find. In, in, in Israel's example, that's not true. The national tithe for Israel would have been about a 33 and a third percent, so you're welcome to give according to Israel if you want to do that. But in antiquity, examples of giving of the spoils of war to a god or to his representative, that exists. It's certainly common in the Near Eastern culture. And the author says here, Abraham did the same. He gave a tenth of the spoils. And that word, spoils, acrophenion, is top of the heap. I love that word, top of the heap. He gave him the choicest spoils. To Melchizedek, who is this guy? He's just king of Salem, and he's a priest of the most high God. And Abraham just sees him, and he gives him the best that he has. Of all the spoils, defeating all those kings, he gives him the best. Now, what the author anticipates here is an argument. And the argument is this. Well, so what? You're trying to say, Abraham, our father, Gave to Melchizedek, and that makes him greater. No, no, no. We also gave to the Levites. So you see, the Levites accepted a tithe as well. And he's right. In verse 5, he says that. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. See, the Levites did not receive a land inheritance, did they? They didn't get land like all the other tribes. Instead, they were told to collect a tithe from Israel, and they also received part of the sacrifices there. And so Numbers 18.21 says, Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. So the Levites, who are of Abraham, received tithes from their own brethren. That's a a fact. But is that the same as Abraham tithing to Melchizedek? This is the argument he's trying to make. Look at verse 6. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, first of all, let me just note, it says he has a genealogy. <laughs> so here he says he has a genealogy. So you can see his point in the earlier argument. It's as if he didn't have a genealogy. Well, obviously he has one, but he says it doesn't derive from them. He's not a Levite, is his point. It doesn't come from them. Melchizedek was not a son of Abraham. And the fact that a tithe was given to him from Abraham is a big deal because he's in a completely different category. He has no ties with Israel, and yet Abraham, the father of the faith, the friend of God, would give a tithe—not just a tithe, but the top of the heap—to Melchizedek. Who is this Melchizedek? In addition to that, Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek, which here comes the loving blessing. Now. You don't have to turn back to Genesis 14, but it did tell us at the beginning, the author doesn't bring it up here, that Melchizedek came out with bread and wine. Do you remember that? He came out with bread and wine, and he used that then to bless Abraham, or Abram at that time. And in Genesis 14, 19, it says, he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God, most high possessor of heaven and earth. Now, here's why this is important. We're told here uh, that he blessed him who had the promises. Yeah. The promises of blessing were given to Abraham, and it's through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It's Abraham who is the blesser, but here it turns around, and he gets blessed by by Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, so Abraham becomes the blessee. Do you see that? He's supposed to be the blesser, but Melchizedek... Blessed him. If you, in case you missed the point, what he's trying to say, verse 7, he says it emphatically. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. It's the better person that blesses the letter. He is the, the lesser, he is the greater one. And in fact, this is the third time that word better is used. Remember, better is a, is a theme word that we find here in Hebrews. The one who blesses is better than the one who receives the blessing. Jacob blessed his children. He's a patriarch. He's a father of the faith. Abraham was to bless all the nations. But here, the greater person blesses the lesser, and Abraham is lesser than Melchizedek. Now, skip verse 8 just for a moment, because verses 9 and 10 really keep in the theme, and we'll come back to verse 8. Verse 9 says this, Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Real quick, the authors basically trying to say you could make the argument that Levi himself, Levi himself, paid a tithe to Melchizedek because he did it through Abraham. He was still in the loins of uh, uh, his father Abraham because why? He's a descendant. He's a descendant of him. So Abraham tithes. He's the father of the Israelites. It's the same as if. Well, Levi tithed, or all the Israelites tithe, straight to Melchizedek um, themselves. His point, obviously, Melchizedek then is greater. So we see that through the lavish tithe given from Abraham to Melchizedek. We see it through the loving blessing that Melchizedek gives to Abraham. We also see it one final place, verse 8, the living priesthood. Look at verse 8. Go back to that verse. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. The author uses the adverbs here and there to, to illustrate the contrast. Okay, here, he says, here in today, in the current time, and in that current time, the Levitical system was still active. That's why they wanted, some of them wanted to go back to that. The Levites still received tithes. He says, but they're mortal men. They, they die. But there, meaning the account of Genesis 14, there, he receives them. Melchizedek receives those tithes. And you might say, well, so what? What's the point? Well, he says of Melchizedek, it is witnessed that he lives. He lives. He doesn't have a death date. So is Melchizedek still alive? No, but his priesthood lives on. No death record of Melchizedek exists. Nothing is said about priests who succeed him. Instead, we have a prophecy from King David a thousand years later that tell us he's going to be a priest forever, the Messiah. And Jesus is a living priest. That makes sense. He's not going to die. In fact, he already died. He conquered death. He can't die. Jesus has an endless life. Hebrews 7, verse 16, he's going to wrap up that argument there, but I'll give you a a little preview there. Remember, he says a priest is going to come in the likeness of Melchizedek. And then in verse 16, who has come, not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of, Of an endless life. So he draws on the fact that there's no record of Melchizedek's death. It's it's as if he still lives on. To say that, and then one has come who lives on, who is eternal, and it's Jesus. Now, this is a lot of deep stuff that he's dived in here today, but can I just bring it back to his whole point? This is a first century church that needs hope. Remember the last thing that he just covered? We looked at this last week. He says, You need hope. And I know who can give you hope. It's Jesus. Hope is the anchor of the soul. And he just said that that Jesus could take that anchor into the very presence of God. Some of them were suffering persecution. They were struggling with fear and doubt. They wanted to go back to their old ways. Some here today might be struggling with fear and doubt, thinking, gosh, it was just better when I wasn't following Jesus. (laughs) I want to go back. But there's hope. There's hope to be found. And it's in in Jesus who can take your hope into the very presence of God and anchor it right in front of him. And the question, could could Jesus really do that? I mean, you'd have to be a pretty important guy. I mean, you'd have to be, uh, at the very least, a priest. But God, in his infinite wisdom, established Melchizedek. (laughs) Way back in Genesis 14, this Melchizedekian priesthood, that it would be a universal priesthood. That it would be a royal priesthood. That it would be an eternal priesthood, which could bring, eventually, righteousness and peace together in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, we don't need Levitical priests, is the point. We don't need Catholic priests. We don't need Mormon priests. We don't need any earthly priests of any kind. We just need Jesus. And the amazing thing about Scripture, if you don't believe the Bible is written by God, I think this chapter is one of those ones that have to start to make you think twice about that. Because who in the world would have thought up this character, Melchizedek, that would only come from the infinitely wise mind of of our God? Melchizedek is great, and therefore, so is Jesus. He's a greater high priest. And we're going to look more next week about Christ's priesthood. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you for Hebrews 7. I know there's a lot of deep and complicated things There, Lord, I just pray, Lord, if your people gained anything from that, that they would just see the magnificence of your word, the grandeur of your wisdom, Lord, that you would place this character in in history, this, this man, this priest, this king, so that one day we could be truly confident that Jesus is a king and a priest, that he can rule for us, but also intercede for us. What an amazing, amazing God you are. Thank you for your word, Lord. I pray that your word would not return void. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name, amen.